Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back into episode number 14 of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Now, we had a pretty recent episode. We recorded on Saturday, so that's been out for a couple of days, which means, A, I got to check in with you guys more frequently, which is something that I absolutely love to do, but it also means that we are a little bit lighter on the headlines. We talked some of the NFL draft stuff, so I'm just going to say right now, I'm not really going to be talking about the draft. If you want to hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to the last episode, but we do have an awful lot to talk about in the world of the NBA playoffs. So you know what? That's where we're going to go ahead and start our show. And we've got to start it off with the chef, Wardell Stephen Curry. The Golden State Warriors beat the Sacramento Kings 120 to 100 in game seven in Sacramento. And Steph was at his absolute best. He dropped 50 points, made seven threes, shot over 50% from the field, despite taking a career-high 38 field goal attempts. Those 50 points were the most ever scored in a Game 7 in NBA playoff history, and it was a playoff career high for him. Not a career high, but a playoff career high. And I just got to say, this guy, he's 35 years old. Our minds are somewhat warped to the concept of age because we have LeBron in the NBA. We had Tom Brady in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers to an extent. Steph Curry's 35 years old. He's older than Kevin Durant. And we don't talk about him that sort of light. We don't show him that same respect that we were showing LeBron when he was 35 years old. And again, part of that is because we still have LeBron in the league where there's still someone else to look at who's further along the line. But Steph is 35. And I know that he was a unanimous MVP and a back-to-back MVP, but I think this is the best he's ever been. I truly do, because the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors are not a good basketball team. If you've been following the channel for the past couple of weeks, I've been saying, and I was saying up until tip-off of the Game 7, that I thought the Kings were going to win that series. I said from the start, the Kings are going to win in seven games, and the Warriors ended up taking it. But it wasn't because the Warriors were better than the Kings. The Kings were better than the Warriors. But Steph Curry was just unimaginably sensational. All-time, all-time, all-time greatness. It was it was one of those breathtaking games that no matter if you're his biggest fan or your biggest hater, you just have to sit back and applaud because he was truly amazing. And he really did get pretty much no help from anyone on his teammates, anyone on his team. The only teammate of his that deserves any sort of real praise for their performance was Kevon Looney, who had 11 points and 21 rebounds. I saw someone Photoshop Dennis Rodman's hair and earrings and tattoos onto him, and I thought that was pretty hilarious. But Kevon Looney truly does look like Dennis Rodman in this series. He averaged 16 rebounds a game. I mean, he was truly amazing. He was definitely the second most impactful Warriors player, obviously the first being Curry. But let's talk about those other three guys that you expect to step up, the Jordan Poole, the Clay Thompson, and the Andrew Wiggins of the world. In Game 7, they combined for 41 points, so less than 14 points apiece, on 27% shooting. Now, they, they're they not they're not as good as they were. Wiggins, we give him a pass because he was off the court for a couple of months, had the family problems. Clay actually had one of his best offensive seasons ever, but if you've been watching the games, you'll know that he's still very streaky. And he, he j- I don't have the same confidence in Clay as I used to. When I watch him shoot, I don't think it's going in. I don't just assume it's going in like I used to. And then Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole looks really bad. He looks really, really bad. I had a little rant on him also on the last episode, so again, feel free to go check that out. But Jordan Poole, the Golden State Warriors paid him 
they paid him $130 million over four years, got him a brand new contract after they won the championship last summer. And he just looks awful. He looks totally out of control. His jumper isn't falling. Every time he drives to the rim, he, he's flailing for fouls that he's not getting. He's throwing it off the bottom of the backboard or he's getting stuffed. He can't do anything around the rim. He's not playmaking for his teammates. He's completely out of control. I said on the last episode, it looks like a human is trying to play twister on a basketball court. And you know what? I've updated that. I've, I've updated it to it looks like they told somebody for your halftime competition, you have to dribble a ball across the basketball court and make a layup, but you're doing it on a slip slide that's exactly what it looks like when Jordan Poole is playing these days and in and in proof of that and this is really really an indictment against Poole is I'm not just saying that to be funny Steve Kerr again they just paid him 130 million dollars Steve Kerr is playing him less minutes than he did in the last playoffs he really most of these young guys they're not panning out James Wiseman they traded to Detroit Jonathan Kaminga hadn't played in the last couple of games Moses Moody actually got on the court and made some impactful defensive plays and some threes, but even still, he's playing less than 20 minutes a night. That's not where you wanted him to be at this stage. And then Jordan Poole, Draymond last year in the run to the championship was saying he was, he was the number one option for half of the year. And you see him when he's at his best, and he truly does have the talent of Steph Curry when he's at his best. He's just so unfocused and undisciplined and makes so many boneheaded decisions that we're seeing the regression coming. If he's not careful, I honestly think Golden State could get rid of him while he still has some trade value because Curry's getting old. Steph Curry or Clay Thompson's getting old. Draymond Green's getting old. He might not even be back in Golden State after this year. You need people to transition to the future. And you wanted Jordan Poole to be that for a while. But I think now Bob Myers and company are going to be thinking to themselves, is this actually the guy that we want to hand the keys to after that? Another thing from that game seven that I do want to bring up, Mike Brown, I thought was excellent for most of this series, especially in game six. I thought it was a stroke of genius to get Trey Lyles into the small ball five and change the rotations. He sits a bonus more minutes, but I think he overthought himself in game seven. He played Terrence Davis 26 minutes. I know Davis is more of an offensive threat than Davion Mitchell is, but Terrence Davis is not somebody that you want playing 26 minutes in a do or die game seven when your franchise hasn't won a playoff round in 16 plus years. It's just not. No offense to the guy. He was trying, but he was getting cooked. He had a pretty terrible plus minus. He was minus 20, which is exactly the amount of points they lost by. So maybe it fits. But the Lakers are now waiting to take on these Warriors, these Warriors who just had a seven game battle. And now, in the Western Conference semifinals, we have got the classic showdown that everybody wanted to see. We've got the Lakers versus the Warriors. Now, this, this has a legacy and a rivalry in and of itself, not just the Lakers. I mean, everybody wants to beat the Lakers historically, and everybody wants to beat the Warriors as of the past decade. But the LeBron-Steph Curry matchup, we know what that represents. Now, Steph Curry has his number in the finals. He's 3-1 and one against him. But LeBron beat Steph and company by three points in the playing game in the playing tournament in 2021. If you remember, that's when LeBron hit the three-pointer right in Steph's face. And he was saying that I can't even see because Draymond had poked him in the eye. We are going to be in for a very fun series. Obviously, with that history, it's going to be impossible for it not to be fun and entertaining. But also the way that these two teams play. Because Golden State wants to get up and down the court. They want to shoot a bunch of threes. They want to get into a shootout with their opponents. And that's how they want to win games. The Lakers don't mind running. But also, they don't mind slowing it down. And especially in the playoffs, we're going to see LeBron ease this game in the half court. And we're going to see their defensive we're going to see their defensive abilities shine through. Anthony Davis just averaged 4.3 blocks per game in the last round. Truly one of the most dominant de defensive performances in the playoffs over a round over the past decade, two decades even. So that's going to be interesting to see how those styles bounce off of one another. Now, 
both teams should have reason for optimism. We can start with the Warriors here. Obviously, they had won only two games in the regular season. They were 2-20 and 20 against teams that were 500 or better, and they were playing on the road. And one of those wins was against the Kings when Sabonis, Fox, and Monk didn't play. So really, they only had one win all season of that magnitude. They just went on the road twice, got two wins in that round one against the same Kings, and they beat them on the road in game seven in what was the most hostile environment in the NBA this season. So they're going to be buoyed with all of that spirit, and they're going to be able to go back to their home court for game one where they take on the Lakers, who they have infinite familiarity with LeBron and not infinite, but they have a great deal of experience with Anthony Davis and some of the other players on this roster. And they played with D'Angelo Russell. Let's not forget, he played for the Warriors for his seasons. So they know how he operates. And D'Lo isn't great in the playoffs, although he was sensational in game six against the Grizzlies. But the Lakers, they were 3-1 and against the Warriors this season. They were 3-0 and against them after they made the flurry of moves at the trade deadline, picking up D'Lo and Vanderbilt and Beasley, getting rid of Russell and Beverly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Lakers have also been in pretty dominant in these playoffs. Now, I know they haven't been scoring a ton of points, but they have the second best overall net rating. And believe it or not, the Lakers and the Warriors are almost identical in offensive rating. They're eighth and ninth, I believe. They're either eighth and ninth or they're ninth and tenth. But they're right there within the point of one another. And the Warriors' defensive rating is really bad. It's, it's not even comparable, which is why the Lakers outshine them so much in net rating. But I just think it's interesting that the Warriors just played a seven-game series against the Sacramento team that plays absolutely no defense. Meanwhile, the Lakers, who started on the road, I mean the Kings started on the, or the Warriors started on the road as well against the Kings, but the Lakers started on the road against Memphis, who had the best home record in the NBA. Memphis allowed the lowest field goal percentage to any team in the NBA in the regular season, and they have basically the same rating as them. It doesn't line up, and it, it shouldn't line up, and it's definitely a credit to the Lakers. It's a plus in their favor. And again, they're so dominant defensively, we know that's not even going to be close. Now, the Lakers' one weakness in their defense is their perimeter defense. We saw that they were able to do a great job on the interior, completely disrupting Memphis's attacks to the rim. LeBron actually did a phenomenal job guarding Jaron Jackson Jr. in that series, which I don't think is something that most people expected. Jared Vanderbilt did, de did a decent job chasing John Moran around the perimeter. Is he going to be chasing around Steph Curry? He might. And to be fair, I think he could have a quote-unquote easier time. It's, it's not going to be easy, and we've seen Steph is kind of impossible to slow down anyway. But I think he could have an easier time chasing Steph, knowing that Steph isn't as much of a threat to blow by him and take it to the rack. So that's all going to be very interesting to monitor. Um, LeBron only averaged 22 points per game in the first round. He was the leading scorer on the Lakers, but weirdly, he never led them in scoring in one of their victories. Now, it looks to me like LeBron is injured, and it almost seems like he was saving himself for defense because he know he didn't have his offense going. No matter what happens with your defense, how good it, how good it is, the Warriors, they're going to find their shot at some point in this series. So I'm just wondering, is LeBron, who shot 19% from three in the first round, the career worst for a series, is he going to be able to regain his offensive momentum? Because if not, the Lakers are going to be in trouble. I'll say that right away. The Lakers... Back to singing their praises, though. They have the best record in the NBA since the trade deadline, and they're well-rested. They got a couple of days extra rest, and I know that they have to go on the road, but both, both teams play in California, so it's really not a big deal for them. That is vital for an older team, and the Warriors are old, too. Let's not get it twisted, but the Lakers especially, because we've seen those nights where they come out and they just have no energy. So both teams have their advantages of this series, but I think it's leaning towards the Lakers. 
I think I think stylistically they just have the better matchup. I think they're going to get a little boost in game one because they do have that extra rest. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the Lakers take game one. I'm not sure if I'm going to go full on money line, but at plus four and a half, I would definitely take them in that spot. So that's going to be my pick for game one. And like I said, as of right now, series pick is the Lakers. I will update and evaluate that after we see a couple of games because again, these teams are just so different that you have to see them play one another to fully assess what's actually going to happen. But that's where I'm at with them right now. And where I'm at with the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns, well, if you missed my last episode, I actually just put out the first ever edition of the stance with Grant Mitchell. You know that this is the sitch with Grant Mitchell. I decided that I'm going to be uploading mini episodes called the stance. You know, most of our episodes here are anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour. The stance is going to be something like 10 to 15 minutes, and I'm only really going to be talking about one topic. But that one topic in the first episode of the stance was an analysis of what happened in the Nuggets and Suns game one, which if you missed it, the Nuggets won 125 to 107 on their home court. Jamal Murray was absolutely out of this world. He had 34 points, made six of 10 threes. He had nine assists. Nikola Jokic, two-time MVP, 24 points, 19 rebounds. He was also great. And Devin Booker and, and almost said Chris Paul, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant were also very good to their credit. They had 29 points and 27 points, respectively. They had 14 rebounds, or Durant had 14 rebounds. Booker, I believe, had eight assists. Might not be sure. Might have to check that one, but I believe it was eight assists. But they really just didn't get help from anywhere else. And one person that was especially disappointing was DeAndre Ayton. I mean, there were possessions where Jokic was padding his stats, getting three or four rebounds in a possession, and Aiton is standing on the out-of-bounds line waiting for him to make it so that he can take it out. He just showed no effort or desire whatsoever. His screens were lazy. He wasn't he wasn't waiting long enough. And in other cases, he wasn't attached to his teammates, so the defender was able to easily breeze by him. I mean, Jokic ca caught him fronting him and pushed him out to the free throw line and got a quick layup off of an entry pass. There were just so many mental mistakes and also just a total lack of desire. And this is a situation that the Suns have run into numerous times with Aiton on this team. And this is actually an interesting situation, an actually an interesting conversation to have. Because who are the who are the centers in the Western Conference right now? Anthony Davis, he's a clear tier above DeAndre Aiden, so I don't even want to talk about him. But how about someone like and Jokic too, by the way? Jokic also in a clear tier above him. But how about we look at DeAndre Ayton and Kavon Looney? Is Ayton a more skilled player? Obviously. But who's more impactful to winning? Who can actually fit better with stars around them? I think there's a real argument for Kavon Looney. I don't think you can win with DeAndre Ayton. He has such low desire. And we've seen all-time greats say, when you can't impact the game how you normally do, find a way to come up with something else. And to, and to influence the game. Kobe Bryant had 18 rebounds in an NBA Finals game because he just didn't have his shot going. LeBron James just had a tw his first 20-20 and 20 game of his career against the Grizzlies. Same thing, because he couldn't score the ball. We've seen all-time greats do stuff like this. DeAndre Ayton gave you 14 points and 7 rebounds in Game 1. And it's not even like he didn't have his stuff going. He was just playing how DeAndre Ayton does. He was just floating through the game, minding his own business. And I feel, I actually, I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I feel terrible for Kevin Durant and Devin Booker because they are being asked to do everything. They have to score 65 or more points or else the team has no chance of winning. And on top of that, they've got to get 20-plus rebounds between them. They've got to get close to, if not more than 15 assists. 
They're going to get no help off the bench. Phoenix averaged 14 and a half points off the bench in the first round. That was the lowest in the playoffs, and it was the third lowest in the last 40 years of playoff basketball. They're, the rest of the players in their starting lineup and in the rotation, they can't shoot threes. I mean, Chris Paul is one of the best assist men in NBA history, and they have him off the ball sitting in the corner because he's the only person who's actually willing to shoot a three-pointer. And his, shoot, his shooting motion is so slow that half the time he doesn't even get the shot up. I mean, the Suns shot five threes in the first half of game one. Now, they finished that game with 23, but they only shot 30% from them or on them. There, there's just such a clear problem. And a, a lot of this also go, is a credit to Denver and Mike Malone's game plan because they did a phenomenal job. Jokic was in drop coverage for a lot of the night, but there were instances in which he would step up and he would close off the next option, whether the ball handler was looking to drive one lay or whether the screener was rolling. Jokic was stepping up. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to. When Jokic wasn't on the court, the Nuggets said, we know DeAndre Ayton isn't going to back us down. So, you know, what? we're going to switch Bruce Brown on him. And instead of punishing them like a big man should, a seven-foot big man, he was taking 12-foot turnaround jump hooks. To nobody's surprise, those didn't go in. So it was just a total, total mismatch in terms of execution from the Nuggets. They were also coming up with 50-50 balls. They were getting at second-chance opportunities. They were getting out in fast break more. It was all lopsided for them in game one. Now, for game two, I am optimis optimistic for the Suns. I'm optimistic for the Suns because they shot 51% from the field in game one. Despite it seeming like they were never in the game, like everything was going against them, they shot 51% from the field. That's going to work. Kevin Durant and Devin Booker were great. And again, it's so unfair that they have to have all these offensive responsibilities. They have to play 45 minutes a night, and they have to be the two best defenders on the court for the team to have a chance. It's unfair, but it is the reality that we're in. And I think they can do it for a game. I think they can because they were hanging around for a while with, with Denver for the first half for the first three quarters. And we saw them go behind by double digits to the Los Angeles Clippers and then come roaring back. Now the Nuggets, they're better well-drilled and they execute better than the Clippers did, but the Suns still have that capability within them. So for game two, I think the Suns at plus four and a half is a play. Now, I am not saying to bet them on the money line. I can 100% see Denver winning this game, and it would not surprise me whatsoever if they did. But in my mind, if I'm setting the line, I would make it at a point or two because I think Phoenix, again, everything went wrong for them, but they shot 51% from the field. They shot more free throws than the Nuggets did. If they can limit some of these turnovers and just not let the game get out of reach, not let Jamal Murray turn into Steph Curry, I think they can keep it close. So the nut or the Suns plus four and a half, that's going to be my play for game two. Now, this episode is coming out the day of game two. So hopefully we're back in time. Maybe I'll drop a stance. Maybe I'll record another full length sitch and we can talk about what actually happened in that game. Another game that we have to talk about, another series we have to talk about, the Miami Heat versus the New York Knicks. Now, the Knicks were favored by four and a half. Was it four and a half or was it four? I can't quite remember. But all I know is I was on the heat. And you know what? It was four. It wasn't four and a half. It was four. I was on the heat at plus four going into game one. I actually thought my, my last episode of the sitch, I said my game one pick was the Knicks to cover. But I didn't realize that Julius Randle was going, wasn't going to be playing. And that was, a, that was a big deal for me. So I flipped my vote to heat plus four. And boy, am I glad that I did. Because the heat won game one, 108 to 101. Jimmy Butler doing Jimmy Butler things, although at a cost. He sprained his ankle, basically didn't play for the final five minutes. But you know what? 
the damn New York Knicks and Tom Thibodeau did not take advantage of Jimmy Butler being a wounded soldier. I mean, Jimmy Butler had already received his purple heart and pinned it to his chest. And yeah, the guy's a warrior for going out there and refusing to come off the court injured. He's embodying exactly what his team needed to do. When you look at a leader, you look, you look at Jimmy Butler. I saw someone say, Jimmy Butler doesn't have the dog in him. The dog has the Jimmy Butler in him. That's exactly what it is. Jimmy Butler's a hard ass. He is the definition of a warrior. He's a captain. He's what you should have. But the Knicks, there is no reason that the Knicks should not have gone at Jimmy Butler for those final five minutes. If he's going to stand on the court with his ankle looking like a propeller on a helicopter, then you've got to take advantage of him. You put him in the actions. You get him in the pick and roll. You find the mismatch. You hunt him out. You swing the ball so you go one-on-one -on -one with him in isolation. You do anything you can to attack Jimmy Butler and force Eric Spolster to take him out of that game because he could barely stand up straight. And the Knicks did none of it. They didn't attack him a single time in those five final five minutes. And that, I'm not going to say it's the reason they lost because they were already down, but it's damn sure the reason why they didn't even have a chance of coming back. And now Kyle Lowry was great down the stretch. He was able to close it out. Gabe Vincent had a career game. He was also sensational. And what I've seen from this Knicks team is I said, look, there's going to be regression to the mean. The Knicks aren't going to shoot 28% from three like they did in the first round of the playoffs. And the Heat aren't going to shoot 45% from three like they did in the first round of the playoffs. We're going to be meeting in the middle, and that's what's going to decide this game. And the Knicks upheld some of their principles. I mean, they were playing really tight defense. They are actually hitting a lot of threes in the early parts of the game. They were getting to the cup. They were forcing turnovers. They were out hustling the heat for a lot of the game. But all of a sudden, the well ran dry, and the Knicks only finished the game shooting 21% from three. The Heat only shot 33%, but it seemed like every time they needed one in the second half, they ended up getting it, and it was those timely shots that made a huge difference. And now Jalen Brunson wasn't at his best. He had 25 points and seven assists, which is actually better than what he averaged in the first round. But this game had more tempo to it. That was one thing that I was saying was that his 25-point average in the first round, actually closer to 30 because of how slow the games were being played between the Knicks and the Cavs. But he had 25-7, and 7, but he was 0-7 from three. He had some turnovers. He said after the game he has to be better. I'm not going to get on too much because he knows it. He knows they gave that game away. And the Knicks, weirdly, are better on the road than they are at home. Now, Madison Square Garden was rocking. I do think the Knicks can bounce back in game two, but I'm not giving a betting pick until I see the injury report. I need to know if Jimmy Butler's playing or not. I need to know if Julius Randle's playing or not, and I think Randle is. But I also probably won't bet this game anyway because I'm fully expecting Butler to play. But if he does, I don't know what I'm going to get from him. And so I'm not going to bet them. I'm just not going to bet the game. There's too many variables at hand, and I don't really have a good firm control of the situation, so I'm not betting that game. Who do I think is going to win this series? I think as long as Butler didn't severely damage his ankle, you know, let's say he's back to 90 95% by game three or game four, I think the Heat are going to end up taking this series. I think you saw that the Knicks had pretty much everything going exactly the way they wanted it for the first half, and they were still only up five points, and then they end up losing the game. That tells me that the Heat are the better team, and they probably should move on. But, again, it's one game. We've got a long series, so we're just going to wait. We're going to hold off any judgment, and we're going to see what happens. And the last series in which we're going to see what happens is the Boston Celtics versus the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, this should have been the best rivalry in the playoffs, probably. Maybe second best behind the Lakers and the Warriors. But this should have been the best quality of basketball. And we're most likely not going to get it because Joel Embiid, not going to play in game one. He's doubtful. So, I mean, he could play. They said if he does play, he's going to have a brace on and he's going to be in pain and ineffective. But I'm just going to assume they're not going to play. I mean, he might not play in game two and might not play beyond that. We're going to have to wait and see. 
But if he doesn't play, the 76ers were only 6-4 and four in the regular season when he didn't play. They were only 1-1 one one against playoff teams, and one of those wins was against a Brooklyn Nets team that doesn't even exist anymore. And I just I, – I look, there's no reason to bet Philly. There's just not. I mean, James Harden, he looks old. He looks washed. He looks tired. He looks injured. He looks everything bad, all the connotations, all the, all the stereotypes that go to playoff Harden. That is what he is. He's got – he's averaging 17 points, 8.5 assists – this assist part isn't bad, but he's shooting 34% from the field. He's like the fourth or fifth leading scorer on the Sixers. Now, the one thing that I can say is interesting is that Joel Embiid was only the third leading scorer on the Sixers in the playoffs. He was only scoring 20 a night. I mean, 20 points a night, you'll take 20 points a night. That's tough to replicate. But from the guy who's going to win MVP, you were certainly expecting more. Now, Tobias Harris has been really good. Tyrese Maxey's been really good. Some of the other players on this team have been really good. Philly has the number one net rating in the playoffs, although you could maybe make the argument they have the easiest first-round matchup out of all the teams in the playoffs. Um, 76ers, this is the one thing that is going to keep this game interesting. They did have the best defensive rating, or they do have the best defensive rating in the playoffs, and they are shooting the ball really well. I mean, both teams are shooting 41% from three. I had no idea the Sixers number was that high. I've got to be honest. I thought it was just the Celtics that were airing the crap out of the ball because the, the the Atlanta Hawks just could do nothing to stop them. Their five-out system, they were able to collapse the paint and then kick it out to shooters. They were getting pretty much anything they wanted from the outside. So I expected the Celtics to be way ahead of the Sixers. Not the case. And in the one game, game four, where Embiid didn't play against the Brooklyn Nets, they still shot 38% from three. And you can absolutely take that. I know it's lower than 41%, but 38% is well above league average, and that's good enough to win you some games. So what's going to end up happening? Well, the Sixers, they're really going to miss having that huge presence that attracts people on the inside. And so what that's going to allow the Celtics to do is to crowd out the three-point line. And now you're going to need you're going to need Tobias Harris to be hitting his mid-range shots. You need him to be able to work off his pick and roll actions. You're going to need Tyrese Maxey to be able to drive and collapse the defense. And you're going to need Harden to be able to get to his little floater and also set his teammates up for rim runs and, and tip dunks and lobs and all that stuff. Now, you're asking for a lot from Philadelphia. So I am not going to be betting them at plus 10. However, that Celtics minus 10, that's a pretty big number. So game one. I'm going to consider this a feel-out game. I am not going to bet this game. And I know I'm being a little uncommittal with my picks here because I, I said we're going to have to wait for a tip-off in the injury report in the Heat game. I know we said we're going to have to wait for um, some other developments in the other games, but this one I'm just not betting. Game one's a stay away. It's a feel-out game. We're going to see what happens. I have full confidence in the Celtics to win this series because Embiid is injured partially, and also just because the Celtics own the 76ers. I mean, that's how it's been for a long time. That's probably how it's going to be for a long time. The 76ers, though, I really do want to see a competitive series from them because this is probably their best chance to ever really have a shot at, at making the NBA Finals in recent years. Maybe the year where they, they lost to the famous Kawhi Leonard Toronto Raptors Game 7 four bounces on the rim shot. Maybe you could say that was their best year. But this is their best year since that since then for sure, and maybe just their best year period in the past decade or two. So really hoping for a competitive series from them. I just have a feeling that we might not get it. And that's going to do it for the NBA playoffs, guys. We're going to move it on over to the NFL here, and this is how we're going to close out the show. Now, I said that we are not going to be doing NFL draft reviews, and we are absolutely not. But what we are going to do is just a very quick wrap-up of the show. We are going to be talking about my NFL power rankings moving in to the 2023 NFL season. And my favorite 
honorable mention. I'm going to give you my top 10 for the power rankings, but I got to start with the honorable mention. And when I, I'm, I'm really saying them, not because I think they're 11th in my rankings. I didn't do any numbers beyond 10. They probably wouldn't be 11th. But I tell you what, I don't think they're that far off. And I think this team is genuinely going to be good. The Chicago Bears. Now, why? Why do I have faith in the Chicago Bears? Well, Justin Fields is absolutely electric when they started They started to let him run the ball. They got him some offensive line help with Paris Johnson Jr. That Paris Johnson, yeah, sorry. I almost said, I, I was thinking to myself that it should be Paris Campbell. But no, that's the wideout. Paris Johnson Jr., he's going to be a huge help on that offensive line. They beefed up the defense with Tremaine Edmonds. If you don't respect Tremaine Edmonds or you don't know enough about him, go look at the Buffalo Bills defense. He was the quarterback of that. He was the captain of that defense. He was the reason that everything ticked. And look at Roquan Smith, who coincidentally came from the Chicago Bears. When he arrived in Baltimore with the Ravens, they had the 27th or 28th ranked defense. Ever since he got there, they were a top three defense in the league. Edmonds, I don't know if the Bears have good a good enough supporting cast to reach that same sort of level, but I think they can easily go from one of the worst defenses in the league to maybe a, a top 15 defense. And their offense, I think, is going to be exciting because we saw they had the second most rushing yards per game. Fields was absolutely electric. Now they did average the fewest passing yards per game, so you're going to need better from that. But part of that was the offensive line. Fields was tied with Russell Wilson for the most sacks taken by any quarterback in the league. They also had very few receiving options. Guess what? Now they've got a bona fide number one in DJ Moore. They've got Darnell Mooney. They've got Chase Claypool. They've got some receiving options for him. They got Khalil Herbert in the backfield. Khalil Herbert led all qualified running backs in yards per carry last season. And that's part of why they were so comfortable moving off David Montgomery and promoting him from second fiddle to the bell cow. So I have high expectations for this Bears team. I think 9-8 and eight season would be success, and I think it would be indicative of what is to come for them. So that was my honorable mention. And again, I'm not saying they're 11th, but I'm saying they're kind of close, and I just want to give them a special shout-out. Let's go to my actual list. Number 10, the New York Jets. They had one of the best defenses in football last year. Aaron Rodgers stepping into this offense. He's going to help smooth some of the chaos that was at quarterback. Now, why, you might be asking yourself, do I only have them at 10th? Because they're 6th in Super Bowl odds. Well. If you add up Aaron Rodgers' passing yards and Jordan Love's for the one game that he played, and you compare it to the passing yards that the Jets got last season, the Jets actually threw for more yards than the Packers did. Now, you can say that's because they were behind in games and they have quarterbacks who are willing to take more risks and air the ball out. And I would say you are absolutely right. And I expect the quarterback play to be better this season. It's hard to be, it's hard to be worse than Joe Flacco, Mike White, and Zach Wilson. But I don't think Aaron Rodgers is the MVP that he was a couple of years ago. I, th I think people underestimate how quick the fall off is once you hit a certain age. And Tom Brady, again, Tom Brady, Steph Curry, LeBron James, they've they've warped our minds to what play, to what aging is for professional athletes. Look, it's totally fine for Aaron Rodgers to so, show signs of age. He's almost 40 years old. Now, I think he's going to be better than he was last season, but I don't think he's going to be amazing. You look at the offensive line situation, the Jets' offensive line is significantly worse than the Packers. The Packers was graded as the third best in football. Jets were closer to the middle of the road as far as pro football focuses, rankings go. The receiving talent, pretty similar. A bunch of young guys who can make some big plays but are a little inconsistent. Very similar situations. You got a you got running back in Brees Hall who's really good, but A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones are no slouches, so – Pretty sim similar situation for the offense. I expect more of the same from the defense. I've got the Jets coming in number 10. At number 9, the Detroit Lions. They had one of the four most prolific offenses in the league last year, and they've made upgrades all over the board. Now, you can say that they reached for some of their picks, like Jameer Gibbs at 12 and Jack Campbell at 18, but 
They added some much needed help. They got they got Branch added into the secondary. That's going to be an enormous help. The Alabama safety and look, this defense. They, they, Dan Campbell's the coach, so we know they're going to play hard. We know they're going to want to make plays. You got Aiden Hutchinson on the front line. He was the defensive rookie of the year last year. I think he's going to be really good this year. This is a fun and exciting team, and right now they're number nine. I'm not saying they're going to have the ninth best record in the NFL, but I think if you look at what they did last season combined with some of the moves they made in the draft and free agency, I think they're worthy of being in the top ten. It's a lot has to. There's a lot that still has to play out for them because is Jared Goff going to be that good again? Is Dan Campbell actually going to be able to be a winning coach, not just a coach who wins some games and gets guys to play hard? We're going to see. Number eight, the Los Angeles Chargers. You got Justin Herbert, one of the five or seven most talented quarterbacks in the league. Austin Eckler wants out. That's going to be a situation to monitor who's going to be the running back because that could play a big role. But we've seen some of the problems that Herbert has had have been because there's been a lack of continuity with the offense because Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are injured all the time. Guess what? You got Quentin Johnston in there. He's a 6'3", speedy wideout that you can line up at the X, the Z. You can move him in the slot. You can do whatever you want with him, and he's going to produce. The defense arguably the most talented in football, arguably, or at least it was. You gotta, you probably got to put the Eagles and the Niners ahead of them. But still, top three most talented defense in the league, they just can't stay healthy. If they stay healthy, this will be a top 10 team in the league. And Brandon Staley catches a lot of flack, but he's a defensive genius. He was the mastermind behind the Los Angeles Rams Super Bowl run. So you got to give him his credit there. And I think that the, this team is going to be very good, again, with the caveat that their health holds up. Number seven, the Dallas Cowboys. Again, very prolific offense. Dak Prescott threw the most interceptions in the league last year despite missing a quarter of the season, which is why I can't put them any higher. But I'm still expecting this team to be really good. They made some moves on the defense. They got Leighton Van Der Esch locked back up to a contract. A very talented roster. That's the number one you think of when you think of the Cowboys. They're going to have a hellacious pass rush. They're always going to when you've got Demarcus Lawrence on one side and Michael Parsons on the other. Just a solid top-to-bottom team. They're just solid. Their, their floor is very high, but their ceiling is not as high as some of the other teams on this list, like the Baltimore Ravens. Look, Lamar Jackson is only a couple of years removed from being a unanimous MVP. And through three weeks of football last year, he was the best player. Now, three weeks is not a huge sample size. He showed some regression before he ended up getting injured. But I think this is a motivated Lamar. We saw that he was sliding to avoid taking contact all the time. And I'm not blaming him for taking care of his body. But I think it does show that there was just a little bit of trepidation and hesitation as far as his mindset goes because he didn't have the contract. Well, now he does, and he's got some playmakers around him. He got Odell. He got Zay Flowers. The defense, again, I said, once they got Roquan Smith in there, they were one of the top three in football. So I think you've absolutely got to give them their respect. And the AFC North is winnable. I think the Steelers' defense is awesome. I think the Browns are mediocre. And I think the Bengals, we're going to see them later on this list, so I think pretty highly of them. But is it a division that they, you can win games in? Absolutely. I mean, all the Ravens do is win regular season games and regular season titles. So I've got them at number six. Number five, the Buffalo Bills. I think they are at the bottom of the top tier of contenders, but I think they're the worst team there. Part of that problem is inconsistency. Part of the problem was the running game. Now, literally – 10 minutes before I started this episode, I saw that they signed Latavius Murray to a one-year deal. That's going to help. And obviously, you got Josh Allen, a playmaker, a tight end in the draft. 
You still got Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis. But the loss of Tremaine Edmonds, again, in the middle of that line, in linebacking core is going to be huge. You basically lost your captain. Von Miller is going to be back, and he's going to add more to the pass rush, which is why I didn't demote them that far. But still, number five, I think that's a good spot for them. The San Francisco 49ers at number four. Look, I don't think Brock Purdy or Trey Lance are the answer for the future. I think you still want to get someone else in a quarterback, which is crazy because there's been so much turnover at that position. I, I can't say anything bad about anywhere else on the roster. I mean, the defensive line just added Javon Hargrave, who is maybe the most sought-after free agent in the class and one of the best players on that Philadelphia defense in their run to the Super Bowl. Like, the rich get richer. The spoils go to the rich. Everything you want it applies to this 49ers team. The only problem is, again – the most important position in football, you don't have that nailed on. So number four for them. Number three for the Cincinnati Bengals, Joe Burrow, I believe, is the second-best quarterback in football. And if you have the second-best quarterback in football, it's going to be hard not to be a top contender. Their defense with Lou uh, – Lou, I love you. I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Lou Al something. I always think of Lou Malnati's the pizza place whenever I read his name. But Lou's got that defense playing well every year. Now, they did lose both of their starting safeties. That's going to be an issue for them, and it's, they're going to probably struggle early in the season, but I expect them to fix up the gaps later in the year. Once you get to the playoffs, this is one of the most dangerous teams in football. They can score from pretty much anywhere and anytime they want, and when you've got someone like Joe Burrow, who above all is just clutch, he's someone who can win you games in the fourth quarter. He can throw for 400 yards if he has to. He can throw for 180 if it has to. It doesn't matter. They're going to win a lot of games, and they're going to be one of the most tough outs in the playoffs, which is why I have them at number three. And then the top two teams. Look, normally I hate that every year the team that wins the Super Bowl is the favorite and the runner-up is the second favorite because I don't think that's the case. I think we know there are instances in which teams are flukes. But top two teams in this list. Kansas City Chiefs, number one, Philadelphia Eagles, number two. Look, the Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes, who right now is the best player in the history of football. At this point in his career, nobody has ever done more. Nobody has ever looked better than he has. I know Tom Brady has the legacy awards, and I know that Breeze and, and Rodgers have better stats and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Nobody through this point at this point in their career has been better than Patrick Mahomes is right now. So that's why I'm saying as of right now, more years to come, but as of right now, this is the greatest football player we've ever seen. He's got to be number one. He just has to be. He, he simply does. I also thought they actually had some really smart drafts. Uh, the guy with the long name from Kansas State. Sorry, love you. Uh, I, actually, I actually did watch some of your games. I just don't know how to pronounce your name. I think he's going to be a huge upgrade for that defensive line. The defensive line, or the entire defense, as a matter of fact, was very young last year. I mean, Carl Loftus had some huge plays. And you've seen other guys, the secondary, they played rookies, I think either the third or the fourth most snaps in the league. And for a team that won the Super Bowl, I mean, think about the amount of experience that they're going to be coming back with. So they've got to be number one. And then number two, the Philadelphia Bulldogs, the Philadelphia Eagles, that is, mixed with the Georgia Bulldogs. I mean, you had Jalen Carter to pair him up with Jordan Davis. You've got N'Kobe Dean, who has a big fan of. He's going to be stepping into the lineup more often. You've got, um, you've got who, not Miles Sanders. Why am I blinking on the name? DeAndre Swift. Sorry about that. You've got DeAndre Swift coming in a running back. He's going to be amazing with Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. I mean, from top to bottom, this is probably the most talented team in the league. I was talking about maybe it was San Francisco. Maybe it was uh, – maybe it was um, – wow, I'm really doing a terrible job today. You know what? We're just going to move on. Maybe the most talented team in the NFL. Uh, they Expectations are high. They just got to the Super Bowl. Because the expectations are high, we're going to have to see how they function with being the hunted instead of the hunters because last year they were overachieving. They are exceeding expectations. And this year – Expectations are NFC championship at minimum, Super Bowl or bust. So we're going to have to see how they hold up with that. But guys, 
that's going to be the end of the show. Now, thank you all so much for tuning in, as always. Always love to be up here talking with you guys. Make sure you drop a comment. Let me know what you think of these NBA games. Let me know who you're, who you're taking to win the series, who you're looking at to win the NBA finals as of right now. And also let me know what you think of these power rankings. Who's your best team in the league? Most people are going to say the Chiefs or the Eagles. So you know what? Scratch that. Why don't you give me a team that you're looking at to surprise people? Like my pick was the Chicago Bears. Let me know which team in the NFL you think surprised some people, turned some heads, guys. That's going to do it for episode number 14 of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And as always, have a great day, and I will see you next time.